it's interesting. The idea that faith is a totally private thing, like doesn't even make sense logically or coherently. You, you, a, everybody who says that contradicts it. Barack Obama would go ahead and say, like, you know, we need to expand Obamacare because we have a duty to love our neighbor, as Jesus said. I'm like, okay, I, I want to debate on the love our neighbor ground. Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. Thanks so much, if, especially if you're a regular member of the audience, for watching or listening. You know, I'm excited about every guest that I have genuinely. This week, really excited because a good friend who, of the last four or five years, because of the wonderful book that he wrote, Alienated America, is here. You're really going to enjoy this conversation. This is a conversation, because of my guest, that's going to cover a lot of ground. So obviously, as you should do with every episode, because every guest is great, listen to the entirety of this one, because Tim Carney of the American Enterprise Institute and the Washington Examiner is here. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks, Kevin. We met four or five years ago. I was at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. I had just read, and I and I mean this genuinely, as I told you that night over a beer, one of the best books I've ever read, and it was Alienated America, written by you. Yeah, well, thank you. I had a, I had a great time writing, and it was great going out there and, and talking to that crowd. So we're going to get into that, but that's a, a quick way of putting in a plug, which you did not put me up to. Uh, it, it is genuine. In fact, the only other person on earth that likes that book more than me is my wife. We told you the same thing. And 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 yet, although we've got some important things to talk about, I was almost tempted to do this episode in my Atlanta Braves cap. What would you have thought about that? Uh, you know, it's it's good for a guy like you to root for the underdog. So <laughs> second place team, I, I you know, I, I by wish, half a game as we record this, I wish them the the best in the in the wild card series against whoever they face. Then so. and then when we are in a series with your Mets, uh, you know, any any wagers on that? Well, it'll come down to that series, right? Starting at the end of, of September, and it's in Atlanta. But uh, the Mets ultimately are are the better team, so I'm absolutely willing to to bet. I mean, I may I, I don't know if I'll wear a Braves hat. Maybe I would wear a Heritage hat for a day. If you want to uh, make it a Heritage AI, AI, AI hat, okay. yeah. So there Handshake. we go. All right, on done. The on the record. Series. Yep. I'm afraid I'm going to regret this. Not that you know wearing an AI hat is so difficult or a Heritage for you. Yeah. Uh, it would be worse to wear a Mets hat. <laughs> All right. For the non-baseball fans who are watching and listening, I don't know how they get through life. They need to follow your Twitter feed, which is sometimes is as much about baseball as anything else. One of the questions that I ask people, because it's sort of the required question as a Southerner, is is about their story. Mm -hmm. And you know, you're one of the guys, even though you're very humble, in the the center right part of the political spectrum, who's very thoughtful, sometimes I think in innovative, even unorthodox ways, even though you're a very orthodox thinker. In other words, I think you push the rest of us to question assumptions for the purpose of being even better at what we do. And I've always been curious about how you got to be doing what you're doing, both at the oldest right of center think tank in Washington, D.C., as well as being the senior political columnist at the Washington Examiner. What's your story? I think it helps that I was born a liberal hippie kid in Washington <laughs> Square Park in, in Greenwich Village is where I'm from. And uh, my parents were liberals. My mom, we didn't have the word then yet, but my mom was a community organizer. Um, my dad's an attorney. He did antitrust law. And we grew up in Washington Square Park, basically. And um, my oldest brother became a conservative by reading stuff like National Review and sort of traced him back ultimately to 
studying philosophy and the liberal arts, and I landed at uh, St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, a great book school. So there you're reading what the freshmen are reading this week. They just finished the Iliad. I know because, what is it, 26 years ago today, I just finished the Iliad. The, the curriculum basically stays the same. It's a great books curriculum grounded in the classics, and it really was a uh, mind-opening experience. And in Washington, I've had great bosses. I was at Human Events under Tom Winter and Terry Jeffrey. Then Bob Novak was my mentor and my boss for a few years in there. Uh, during that period, I became a Catholic, um, and my views on a lot of stuff have changed. A lot of my my principles are basically the same, but uh, my views on a variety of issues have changed. And Alienated America ultimately came about because there were things about America I was learning in you know, the 2010s with after Mitt Romney's loss and thinking about, wait, why is he pushing down the 47%? Maybe populism should be part of American politics. Then we get a guy showing up on the scene who's talking about populism and he's rallying people out of the, the sort of the woodwork who I had never seen, the kind of people who had never voted before were showing up. And I thought, huh, America's a different country than I thought. So I go around and I talk to people with uh, without much of a hypothesis, but just saying, why, why, why do people think the American dream is dead? So that's how Alienated America happened. But the the broader story is sort of a um, having parents who were liberals but loved their conservative sons, having a liberal arts education sort of allows you to ask real questions open-minded. And if you're blessed like I am with a job where literally I could – like I'm going to an Irish pub in Western PA to eat wings and talk to the people there all day and figure out about their life. That's been my job. It's been great. And it's it's really allowed me to have a, a sort of dream career and asking questions and trying to get to the answers. So you've learned a lot by drinking beer and eating wings with regular Americans. Yeah. And and, and another part of, of, of that intro, I, mean, I could probe a, a few of those points, but the first one, especially for anyone in the audience who's unfamiliar with St. John's College, is to say that... That's a curriculum that by immersing students fully in the intellectual tradition of the West causes students, even though that you're pursuing capital T truth, to question assumptions because that's the nature of our intellectual tradition. When I was president of Wyoming Catholic College, I came to appreciate St. John's not only because we had a couple of faculty members who mm -hmm. had been undergraduates there, but in a lot of ways, our curriculum, very, very similar, uh, rested upon the great work of St. John's. And so that's the kind of institution I would argue, this is my hypothesis, St. John's, that we need to be replicating as we, we enter this next phase in American history. Yeah, asking questions. It, it's interesting because I'm old enough and you're old enough to remember when sort of what – and I went to New York State Public School. So to some extent, th there was a an official religion of like uh, relativism back then. You know, nothing's really right. If it's right for you, that doesn't mean it's right for somebody else. And so the right was saying, no, there is a right and wrong. Your relativism is wrong. And I feel like American culture has shifted to the other side where you arrive at a university and they're like, oh, well, no, we're not here to debate. <laughs> we know what's right. And if you're asking questions, you're canceled. You're going to get kicked out of here. And so that's why liberal arts education is great because it's not, it's not undermining the idea that there are is right and wrong, that there is truth and falsity, but it's saying you really have to uh, test this. You have to ask difficult questions. And so again, I came into college an agnostic, and a couple years later, I was a Catholic. There were people who came in and said, this is the first time I, as a Christian or as a Jew, has sort of asked my own self deeper questions. And you should want people 
to be sharpening their ideas and asking difficult questions like that. And um, I, I mean, I think St. John's is a great, uh, a great education. It's not, uh, despite the name, it's not Catholic, it's not religious or anything, but it really is about wrestling with the texts and thinking these philosophers, these, you know, giants of Western civilization, let's figure out what they're saying. Like we didn't get to like, is Aristotle right or wrong? Uh, we mostly spend time being like, what is he trying to say? What is what does this reflect on what Plato and Aristotle were saying or Euclid is saying? And just that action really is at, at the heart of learning. It's a curiosity that I think in a lot of higher ed today is not present where it's not an inquiry as much as it's an indoctrination. And St. John's always was an inquiry. That's right. And that's that's evidenced by your own approach to alienated America, right? I mean, you you genuinely had no hypothesis. You say this in, in the introduction and you go into these bars, I mean, all kidding aside, and you start talking to people. And how I guess the question is, how how long were you into the process of researching alienated America? You know, how many how many people did you talk to? Mm-hmm. I want to ask you how many beers you had. Um, <laughs> and it wasn't lo- just beers, coffee shops, oh, okay. church parking lots. Yes. All right. Yes. Uh, how many conversations did you have before you first started developing a working hypothesis? And and to add to the conversations with the men on the street is the uh, social science research. And this is where being an AEI fellow was great because people would just walk down the door and be like, "Hey, can you look at this?" So. I, I think a, a few things that started to point me in the right direction, even though I didn't know what they meant. Well, first of all, to go to the very beginning, um, the book started in part because a publisher was like, do you have any unanswered questions that you really want to know the answer to that could be a book? And I said, yeah, I think a lot of people actually agree that the American dream is dead. And I don't know why they think that. And these people have this hypothesis, da, da, da. And the editor said, well, what's yours? And I said, I don't know the answer. He said, get back to me when you have one. And so I would go to Trump rallies in South Carolina. And when at the end of the book, when I was like doing my due diligence and I was listening to those interviews, it was almost embarrassing to, to see how much I just missed the answer being given to me. Where a guy said, I said, you're wearing a scarf that says make America great again. What's, what's ungreat about America? And he said, when I was a kid, we used to have a Memorial Day parade. And the little leaguers and the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts, they would come and they would lay a flower on the grave. And I was just like, what's this guy going off about? I wanted this to be about trade or immigration or bailouts or something that I cared about. And then, and I totally missed it for, for months. But then there were studies that came and there was – Raj Chetty is a Harvard uh, researcher and he found that upward mobility, one of the biggest predictors. It wasn't like student-to-teacher ratio or, or anything like that. It was – uh, civil society. Was, how much volunteering is there in your neighborhood? Is there a public library? Is there a bowling league to channel Robert Putnam? Um, and also, how many intact families are there? How many of your neighbor kids are being raised by a pair of married parents? And that's what predicted upward mobility. And one scholar at AI handed it to me, he's like, you'll like this. It, it sort of ratifies all your social conservative thought. And that planted a seed. A weird thing that went to the seat was a difference in uh, election results in that all the the Dutch people in America seemed to be voting for Ted Cruz. And I didn't know what that was about, but it was about there were two different types of conservatives. There were conservatives who thought the American dream is dead and a lot of them were backing Trump in the primaries. And there were conservatives who were like, no, I think the American dream is alive and well. So it's like, so why are those people, these Dutch people and Mormons – 
backing Ted Cruz. What is it about? And so I got to go out to any county that was above 25% Dutch, where everybody's named Vander something, and start to slowly learn. And one of the eye-opening uh, things for me was, again, in that if I were to put it at one point where it had started to take the, the hypothesis, maybe this is about community collapse. It started to really take hold in those spring primaries. I went to Oostburg, Wisconsin, and I sit at a diner, and I'd gotten there on a Sunday. And so everybody who's there at the diner already is talking about how strong the community is. And then in come all the crowds from the 815 church service at the first Christian Reformed Church, and then the Reformed Church of America, which is a different thing, totally confusing to a Catholic from New York like me. Four different Reformed churches in this town of 2,000 people. And then I started to see, okay, the community collapse in the rest of America is about the loss of these churches and these institutions. The community strength in Salt Lake City or in Oostburg is about the churches being strong. So where community has is, is strong in, say, Chevy Chase, Maryland, which is down the road from where I used to live in, in Silver Spring, um, they're more secular, but they have, you know, the people still like, the dads still coach Little League, and they have those strong institutions. And that was too. The Maryland primary was in April. So the, the time it really clarified was right there and during those primaries to see the places where, wait a second, if you have a real sense of belonging, you believe the American dream is dead. And the places where that sense has been stripped away by secularization, by the closure of the factories, that's where the belief was that the American dream was dead. And what was the response to the book by people across the political spectrum? In particular, you know, I'm I'm, I'm curious about what some left of center folks who who often share our worldview when mm -hmm. it comes to institutions, right? Because even though they may not be as as keyed in on religious institutions as you and I are, they understand that they're the fabric of American society. What what was their reaction? What was the reaction from fellow conservatives? And I gather on the last one, it, it might have been sort of a variety of responses. Yes. So on on the left, there's a variety of responses. I got a lot of people who had started to say. Hmm, while I'm not religious, I begin to suspect that actually community cohesion and sense of belonging and higher purpose requires religion. And so that idea of um, – and there were a lot of liberals who wrote and some of them in response to my book. They said, if you had asked me in 2004, I would have said, America's secularizing and that's good. And now I say, America's secularized and that's not good. Um, but then um, – and again, the, the deaths of despair and so much of the other problems of alienation. Um, though there were people on the left who just said uh, either Carney's running away from the fact that socialism is the answer, and one one of them was called one of the reviews was called God's bailout. And it's like he makes it clear that what we need is socialism for all the people whose factory closed, but he tries to skirt that by saying what they need is a church. And then there's some people who just say like church is bad, and I mean. It's, it's not a position really held by democratic establishment yet, but a huge part of their base really thinks the biggest problem with America is that there's still too many religious people. And that I discovered on the, on the book tour. That's been obvious this summer, right? Especially yeah. on the heels of the Dobbs decision. The, on the heels of the Dobbs decision, when we talk about gun control or, or gun culture and that sort of stuff, at one point, I think I made an idle tweet before going camping for a weekend. I said, by the way, if you want to counter gun culture, what you should want is more people going to church on Sundays. And the answer was, no, they're the same bad people, the people who go to church and the people who sh do mass shootings. I was like, wow, huh. Um, More research. Not, not right? a lot of, <laughs> not a lot of uh, common ground with that crowd. 
And that's the thing. When you write a book, there's some people you can reach out to. And so on the left, I was trying to get to the people who were starting to – who always knew that community mattered. And I was trying to tell them your vision of community might be government-focused about a public library, a public school, that sort of stuff. But for a lot of people, especially rural America where the, the places where religious institutions are strong – that is the public square. Like the the church isn't just a house of worship. It's where the, the you know the the kids go and they play on a Saturday. That's the sponsor of the baseball team. It hosts the picnic. So like try to tell them you have this good thing, liberal elites. You have this strong community. It looks a little different in other parts of the country. You should embrace it. On the right, the people I was trying to reach out to. There's a couple things. One, just to inform you. My prejudice was, oh, Chevy Chase, Maryland, liberal elites. They're like a bunch of secular swingers. They don't care about it. No, they practice what we preach, right? <laughs> like the, if you want to see places that follow the success sequence of finish school, get a job, get married, have kids, be involved in your kid's life, it is a lot of these places are going to be um, uh, liberal secular places. But then the other message for a lot of the right was, Okay, the nuclear family is the fundamental building block of society, and it's the most important thing for kids, but it's insufficient. So one of my chapters is actually called It Takes a Village, meaning the nuclear family, like a cell in a body, is a fundamental building block, but it needs support from all around. And that was one of the messages I really wanted to get across to conservatives, because Rick Santorum, I've known him for a long time, friends, we've had kids go to uh, similar schools. His book, his response to It Takes a Village was It Takes a Family, which got no objections to anything in that book. But that the sentiment in the title always bugged me a little. Like a family is not adequate. You really – mom and dad need next-door neighbors, need in-laws, need schools, need communities to do it. And that was my main message to, to conservatives in that book. So families are very important. I just want to be clear that – you're not at all opposed to that. You're not not criticizing that. But I think what you're nodding to is what we know from history. We certainly know it from American history is that the family cannot be atomized. Yeah. It, it, it's got to be part of a larger community. In fact, the, the family, you know, whether it's the more left of center secular institutions or as is typical now in the 21st century, right of center, more religious institutions has to be oriented towards something to the external, right? Yeah. And that's that's – to go back to your Aristotle point, that's very Aristotelian too. Yeah. And the uh, – two literary references there. One that we didn't read at St. John's, which is Little House on the Prairie, is that like Pa tries to go out on his own and just be the – and it kind of doesn't work. And by the end of the series, they have to sort of settle down around other families. And there is an idea of like American rugged, rugged individualism. My uh, my old boss at AEI, Arthur Brooks, used to say like American freedom is about living so that you can't hear your neighbor's axe chopping the wood. I was like, see, I just don't think that's true. I'm glad those people exist, but I don't think that's going to be the majority experience. It's about uh, – I call it more Norman Rockwell vision of, of strong community ties. The other is there was um, in the Odyssey, Odysseus comes across the the Cyclops, who's this you know murderous beast. But the description of Cyclops is interesting. He stays in his cave with his immediate family. I think he has multiple wives. But other than that, it's like him, his wives, and his kids. And he takes care of them. So on one level, you could be like, Cyclops is a good family man. <laughs> Let's not have conservatives be Cyclops. The family is a fundamental unit of society. It's our primary obligation as individuals, but it is it 
it both depends on community and this is important too it's a building block of community so sometimes people who are like family needs support they kind of want to dissolve the nuclear family a little bit into a, a bigger mush it's like no you need you need bricks to to build something and the family is a brick but again that relies on what's around it yeah that's a really good way of putting it let's talk about what's if you don't mind by using the the metaphor of brick let's talk about the mortar I mean, that's these institutions, yeah. right? And that seems to be what's what's missing in American society. What's the origins of that? What I'm talking about is just the dissipation of American institutional life. Yeah, and there's a uh, hundred different origins. And um, the way I put in Alienated America is a split between over-centralization combined with a hyper-individualism, that both of these are, are forces. And if you've read Tocqueville, you know where I'm coming from. By the way, my favorite negative review of the book was if you've read Bowling Alone, you've read Charles Murray, you've read Hillbilly Elegy, and you've read Tocqueville, there's not much new in this book except for churches and bars. I was like, endorse. Sounds like a great book. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's why I liked it so much. But Tocqueville pointed that out, that we have a hyper-individualism that's a flip side of an over-centralization. And so the over-centralization is governmental largely. Um, I pull up studies showing how crowding out really was real. The New Deal, the Great Society, had an effect of eroding uh, church charity, local charity, nonprofit. Uh, and so you take away people's ability to serve their neighbors. It's not just you take away people's reliance on their neighbors. You take away their ability to serve their neighbors, and that will erode community. Um, economic over-centralization. It's one of the reasons that crony capitalism has always been one of my uh, main issues is take, uh, what kills Main Street isn't just you know capitalism or free market. Obvi often it's regulations and subsidies to the big guys. And so you take away Main Streets and people drive to a, a regional shopping center instead of walking and bumping into their neighbors. Um, and a hyper-individualism that manifests itself in our attachment to tech. You know, you see a group of kids waiting for the school bus. They're all staring at their phone. Um, uh, Facebook and those things replacing real-life community with virtual community. I would say virtual community is better than no community, but virtual community often displaces real-life community. And so we could go on, but I, I referred earlier to secularization. That's a huge part of it. This fundamental institution of civil society in America, especially for the middle class and working class, has always been the church. And in America now, even a lot of religious people, they're unaffiliated and they're not attending. And then at the same time, there's a rabid push on the left to say, you can be a house of worship. Obama used to say freedom of worship instead of free exercise of religion. Nancy Pelosi used to say, she once said, hey, look, I do my religion on Sundays. She mentioned that she sometimes goes to daily mass too, which is great. Like I, I should go to daily mass as much as Nancy Pelosi. But you don't do your religion <laughs> behind church doors. And that idea of pushing the church out of the public square combined with sort of an individualization of faith in the United States, that may be the most important cause of, of alienation and the erosion of those institutions. And and I, I mean, I agree, as you know, I, I, and I, I don't want to assign all of the blame to that, to, to this person, but I think President Kennedy bears some of it because in 1962 in Houston, he gave a speech in which he created that yeah. division, right? Now, he reflected society. That's the nature of leaders. We need to remember that about yeah. American politics, right? But especially for those of us who are Roman Catholic, not that I was alive then, but that had a, a, a very significant effect, I know, 
for older members of my family who were faithful Catholics who decided they weren't going to vote for him as a result of that. It turned them into Republicans, actually. Yep. But the, the or at least they voted Republican. They couldn't be registered Republican in Louisiana, but they 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 voted for them. <laughs> uh, but all that to say, we over the last sixty years, we've just seen the the full implementation of that, right? Well, it's it's interesting. The idea that faith is a totally private thing. Like doesn't even make sense logically or coherently. You, you, a everybody who says that contradicts it. Barack Obama would go ahead and say, like, you know, we need to expand Obamacare because we have a duty to love our neighbor, as Jesus said. I'm like, okay, I I want to debate on the love our neighbor grounds. Like, let's let's keep going on that. Um, and but also, law is always going to reflect morality, <laughs> and morality is indistinguishable from your worldview, which includes your view of sort of what is human, what are humans? Are we created? Are we just atoms bouncing off one another, et cetera? And uh, the idea, and again, as, as a Christian, we are bound, the, the commandments are, the two great commandments are love God and love your neighbor. And loving your neighbor, when somebody says, what exactly do you mean by that? <laughs> Jesus says, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan of caring for other people out in the public, on the street, not just uh, going home and thinking, God bless my neighbor, Mr. Smith. No, it's actually caring for them. So like for us to exercise our religion, which is guaranteed by the Constitution, we have to be able to do it seven days a week and that the laws will reflect what we morally believe. That doesn't mean we should, you know, mandate church attendance on Sunday. That would be counterproductive, right? Um but it does mean that uh, everybody's politics is influenced by their worldview and by their religion. So that idea of getting the religion out of the public square never was even morally coherent or logically coherent, but it did sort of lead to this shrinking of religion from the public square, which adds to the alienation. I should have made JFK be a bad guy in my book. I, I was just trying to, yeah. to remember if, in fact, you mentioned that in your book, not that you, you needed yeah. to, just it, it popped into my mind. Yeah. A follow-up question is, and this is another chicken or egg question, which is just kind of in yeah. inherently unfair, but you know, it's, it's it's a fair question ultimately. Is the decline in the religiosity of Americans one of the major factors in our uncivil discourse? Yes, absolutely. Um, and as I always say, and anybody who studies social science and thinks about philosophy enough will say, the causality goes both ways. The causal arrows point in both directions. Um, do our social science colleagues at AI and Heritage <laughs> like it when you say that? Yeah, yeah, I think they do. Um, you know, it's it's the op-ed editors who are like, no, you need to be able to say A cause B. I was like, it did, and the other way around. Um, but the, yeah, so the, the collapse in religion has, uh, and again, the view on apparently most of Twitter is that religion is the source of all, you know, and John Lennon, right? Get rid of religion. Imagine no religion, then we'll all get along and sing Kumbaya. But people replace religion with false religions, with secular religions, with what uh, Derek Thompson at The Atlantic calls atheisms. <laughs> um, and the And if you look at what's happened with a lot of politics, and I see this on both left and right, is that politics has become something of a religion. And so people uh, fight it out. People are, and I tell my liberal friends, I say, church attendance is something you should be rooting for for a variety of reasons. Um, Christians are have warmer attitude 
towards Jews and Muslims if those Christians attend church. One of the studies I looked at in my book was about Muslims who go on the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca. And there was this great study because in Pakistan, they used to have a lottery. So they compared only the Muslims who went on the Hajj because they won the Hajj lottery to Muslims who wanted to go on the Hajj but weren't allowed to. And they saw a couple years later, how are they different? Amazingly, Muslims who went on the Hajj were warmer, not just towards like Saudi Muslims, but towards Jews and Christians. A practice and exercise showing up allows you to sort of uh, better form the idea that your duty is to love your neighbor and that there's stuff above you and beyond that what you see as a day-to-day fight might be something you have to fight, but that there's something higher and greater. So yeah, the secularization of America has certainly made us raise the stakes on worldly things where we're going to uh, go ahead and fight one another. So again, tell all your well-meaning liberal secular friends like, okay, one day, you know, whatever happens with your soul, I might not have control of, but please like realize that for the soul of this country, stop trying to erode uh, religious adherence. We could have a conversation of a couple hours just about yeah. that, but I want to be sure that we talk about the book project you're working on now. I just learned about it as, as we were beginning to record. It, it sounds fascinating. So not only explain that, Tim, but but also you know how, how it's very much related, it sounds to me, to alienated Americans. Yeah, so it's about our baby bust. Americans aren't having babies anymore. <laughs> There's fewer children in America today than there were – at the last census. So right there, our population isn't shrinking yet, but it will be soon. If you look at children under five, we're down 8%. And it's amazingly even whether we're talking college-educated, working class, down 8% uh, black children, down 8% white children, down 8% Hispanic children. We are down. Why? Millennials just aren't having babies. Now, it's not my job to, I'm not like a, a would-be grandpa yet to be like, you need to give me children. I want to look at our culture and at our policies and then um, our individual choices and say, what is making it harder for people to have children today? How can we make it easier? Because we have fewer children than we used to and we have fewer children than we want to. The, the ideal number of children average out for American women is still 2.5. It's been there for decades, but we're having 1.7. So like – what can we do to help us get from 1.7 to 2.5? So again, there's cultural changes. Helicopter parenting, I think, is a huge scourge. I, I admit in the book. As a former schoolmaster, <laughs> headmaster, and president, I would verify that. I admit in the book the multiple times I lost just my son, Sean. I don't even go into my other kids. I have about a third of a chapter where it's like the time I get a phone call from a Marine being like, I have your son. Um, and and uh, park police and you know uh, the, the guy at the front desk of the hotel, all these things. And you need to be able to lose your kids. And we have this helicoptering mindset. There's also uh, what I call the travel team trap, that the point of sports is to get your kid a D1 scholarship. No, it's not. We know that the point of sports is, is about building virtues and having fun and um, and building community. But then I, I try to build up towards uh, towards bigger things. And one of the things that struck me during the pandemic was how quickly Americans were ready to accept that their neighbors were like simply vectors or even pathogens themselves. And so that's what really bugs me is this, it, it points to two things. One is this demand for sort of sterility, that we should be able to control our lives and keep it perfectly clean. But even more, a view that humans are actually good. <laughs> Imagine <Right>? that. <laughs> we're good. Like, let's have more of us. We're good. 
But you don't believe that if if you just see a new baby as 58 tons of carbon dioxide or whatever, or if you believe some of the critical race theory stuff, um, America's just incurably racist. Well, then if you're a white parent, you're like, I don't want to make another racist. And if you're a, a black parent, you're saying, do I really want to raise a kid in a country that's going to hate him? So all these things teaching us that we're not good, that's ultimately what's what's at the root. But you're also right. Community cohesion is is a core thing. And, and we don't have enough of that right now. And, and uh, as I would presume is, is part of this book project, to introduce a new topic to our conversation, the environmentalist religion is, yep. is part of this too. I mean, we, we see this explicitly on intelligent forums like Twitter, yes. where people are actually making this claim, don't have kids, it's only going to harm the earth. It goes straight to your point about reminding people that humans are good. We we actually exercise, for the most part, a rather virtuous dominion over earth. I sort of do a mathematical calculation in this book where I say, like, just on a material level, is human life better today than it was 500 years ago? Yes. Was that an improvement on 500 years before that? Keep going back, and we're clearly materially improving. So... What's the cause of that? So it's possible that space aliens are making our life better, but no evidence of that. It could be lizards or lizard people. It could be just climate change is making life better. Sometimes it does. But I don't think that's what's been going on. The steady straight line, the best bet is that it's humans who are making life better. I'm not saying no humans make life worse, okay? You know, again, I have I know people who are Yankees fans. Lots of Yankees <laughs> have made the world worse. But on average... Humans make life better. So the way I talk about it like an economist is I say the expected value of every person is positive. And so that means the more you have, the more positivity you're adding to the world. So humans make life better for other humans. But then there's some a point even more important than that. Even if a regardless of success, and this gets back to like the worry about travel team or my kid going to get into Princeton or get a good job – None of that matters. Every human being is infinitely valuable regardless of the impact that they have on the world. That's a, a sort of spiritually heavier lift. But for a lot of my readers, I just want to say like, look, you know the average person has made life better for everybody else. So, um, you know, let's keep going with this, especially when you look at Western Europe, the U.S. and the, the birth rates. The birth rates are falling in every country in the world basically except for Israel where I'm going in uh, the end of October and you know hopefully I can come back here and talk about that but that'll be in the book too but if the whole west is seeing really low birth rates and the rest of the world is seeing falling birth rates we can set aside the the worries about overpopulation that were o always overblown and so when like, we were kids i mean that that was dominating absolutely. even mainstream commentary right yeah and uh <laughs> There's a New York Times op-ed when I was a kid uh, that said, we have to teach our kids that overpopulation is the biggest problem. And it's by a principal of the John Pettibone Public Middle School in New Milford, Connecticut. I visited the John Pettibone Senior Center in New Milford, Connecticut. A few, it shut down the school because of a lack of enrollment. So, yeah, I think their predictions a were lesson there. A lesson there. So what do we do about it? I mean, I, I know you you tend to gravitate toward the cultural and social responses, and that's very good. So people not familiar with mm -hmm. your work at AEI should be. But I'm curious, although I'm very interested in those things, 
in, in what we do in terms of policy, because I think one of the healthy conversations in American conservatism today, and you're very much part of this, as, as your colleagues at AI and mine at Heritage are, is, is there a policy response, especially at the federal level, that can aid this? Yes, and I, I definitely think there might be. As oh, a conservative, okay. There's a caveat. As a conservative, I know we don't know what the unintended consequences will be. So I'll start with what doesn't work and is getting pushed wholeheartedly by Elizabeth Warren. By the way, let me just say... And you know this, and not that it would bother you because you're a yeah. Mets fan. That's not a, a leading question. At Heritage, we're grappling with this. And yes. so it's not like, you know, you're going to violate some Heritage orthodoxy yeah. about this. Don't 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 sweat this. Um, no. And so the first thing is um, spending money to subsidize child care doesn't work. Um, the Amen. Pl- the people who say it does, they'll point to France. You know what France, <laughs> one of the things they do? When you have a child, you or your wife gets a government-paid basically maternity or paternity leave for up to three years. And then when you have a new child, it starts again. So it's basically a stay-at-home mom bonus because 90% of the people who take it are mothers. A stay-at-home mom bonus paid for by the government until your youngest is, is three years. So that's what causes France to have the highest fertility rate in all of Europe, in my opinion. But um, again, daycare is subsidizing work. I think work can subsidize work. I believe capitalism is how we get people to work. I don't think we need the government to do that. But um, the other the things that have the most promise are just cash for having babies. So Marco Rubio and Mitt Romney have both spoken about this. I love the way you put that. I mean, this is very plain. Cash, uh, cash for, having, for having, babies. having babies. And so sometimes it's when you have a baby. Some people give out a birth bonus in some countries in Europe. Um, some places, it's a, a large child allowance, like a very large uh, child tax credit. That does seem to have an upward effect. I will say it's very expensive. And what uh, some of my colleagues at AEI, like Scott Winship, worry about is, it could discourage work. And my first thought is if it discourages uh, one of the people in a married couple from working, is that bad? And his counter argument would be, well, but a lot of these are going to be single mothers. And if they're raised with no idea of work, then it has intergenerational poverty. So right there, I just, boom, touched off what we could have a 90-minute panel discussion. Wait, you got to come back. With all talk our, about Israel, talk about that. And we <laughs> need to get all our favorite friends to talk about that. Um, on the local level, I talk about walkability. Sound like a liberal there, but when this you is can, your Greenwich Village, yeah, when you can let it. your kids walk to school, that makes it easier to have more of them because then you're not driving them off to school. And uh, there's uh, anything that makes housing more expensive is anti-family. So there's lots of policy fixes on the federal level. I do think we have to have this debate about you know, um, I'd, again, not subsidizing daycare. I think that's a huge mistake, but subsidizing family by saying you are going to get a larger child tax credit. And another way of looking at it is just from the tax uh, code in general. A bigger family has more people. And so for the same income, they should be paying significantly less taxes. That's a very simple conservative argument that doesn't sound like handouts. So I love this debate. I'm, I'm involved in it every day at AEI, talking to heritage people, talking to people on the left as well. I think it's a it's promising that the debate is happening. Well, please individually keep pushing the envelope. And I, and I mean that heartfelt, that it's it's really important to have your voice there. But maybe, you know, here on the record, we can say that we'll have a, a heritage AEI conference. We'll go to your place. Y'all can come here, I think, to, to show that two – important institutions in the conservative movement in the United States are honestly grappling with this. I think we would both say on behalf of our colleagues working on this, neither institution believes we have all the answers. I think that's one of the healthy things about American conservatism now. But also, we are very open, both institutions, 
to any debate, but particularly on this issue, because I believe of all of the policy issues that your institution and mine work on, that is the core of it, because everything else literally becomes immaterial if we don't get this one right. Absolutely. And we, you know, the point, <clears throat> government is there to support individuals, conservatives like to say, but as we were referring to earlier, ultimately, really, that means government is there to support families. And that um, if this, as conservatives were worried, sometimes supporting has bad uh, consequences. Welfare programs uh, often kept people from getting married or kept people from getting jobs. So we just want to say, can we help people without these negative unintended consequences or where the benefit outweighs it? And that's a question that I think to some extent too many conservatives got out of the habit of, of asking um, and fell into a more sort of uh, – a sort of libertarianism that says – you can't make me help my neighbor. And I would think, well, if the government is here to support families, then um, I'm not going to rule it out unless you can show me that it would actually harm the people we're trying to help, which would not be the first time the government did that. So again, we got to have these debates. We got to look at how it works. Got to do it on the state level in the, in the laboratory of democracy. And that's you know, sort of uh, emphasizing what I do and which makes sense given what I've done is, is remember federalism. I think that's a really important logistical way of getting a lot of this done. We'll save the remainder of that conversation for the next time. And uh, and hopefully you'll come back, even though there will be a second 21st century <laughs> Atlanta Braves World Series championship poster in my office. But that said, final question, Tim. There are a lot of challenges in America, in American politics, in our discourse, in our civic life. In spite of that, why did you wake up smiling today? <laughs> Um, I have, uh, you can't say because the Mets are in first place <laughs> <laughs> and it's only a grin when it's half a game. Um, uh, I have six kids and I got to wake them up and, and feed them breakfast and, and send them off to school. And, uh, my wife got to drop a couple of them off and, and go to mass at the parish where we were married, where she was baptized. Um, and then as I, as I said, I've got a, uh, a great job. I'm here. I'm going to go debate liberals on on public radio in a, in a couple hours. Um, but ultimately, even if I lose that debate, even if you know nothing goes right for us politically or anything, I just wake up thinking God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, and <laughs> for us, and that puts me in a good mood. And the sort of the 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 bigger picture view of that is, uh, yeah, humans are good. <laughs> Humans are good. A great way to conclude this episode. Well, Tim, Carney, thanks for joining me. You are a treasure to this country in spite of the fact that you've got this weird baseball alliance. <laughs> but I'll leave that alone. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with my friend Tim Carney. We're going to have to have him back and talk about his, his new book, his trip to Israel. Most of all, and I think I can speak for Tim, thanks for your own role, not just because you watched or listened to this episode, but by virtue of doing that, watching and listening to other kinds of, of broadcasts. You care about this country. You care about civil discourse. Take care. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.